You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. If you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, if you would make your way to Romans chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there is probably one in one of the uh, seat trays in front of you, possibly underneath you, and we will be on page 999 if you're using that pew Bible. Let's start with the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. They say this, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Him as an atoning sacrifice in His blood. And your translation or the one up there may say mercy seat. God has presented Him as a mercy seat in His blood received through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His restraint God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declared righteous, excuse me, and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, as we look at this wonderful turn in Paul's argument here in the book of Romans, in your word revealed to us, speak to us, God. Show us in ways we've never seen before how beautiful and glorious you are. Let us see your atoning work on the cross and in the grave and in your resurrection and even in your ascension. Lord, let us see this with crystal clarity so that we would respond. Lord, I I pray that none of us would be in a position of neutrality this morning, but instead you would push us to see that we believe or we don't. God, I ask that you would give us the Holy Spirit to infuse with our soul, to open our eyes, to regenerate our our very being, that when we see, we would say we believe. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a thread. It's like a string, like like a thread that runs almost the entire way through the entirety of the Bible, it's tied on on one side, the Genesis chapter 3, this this thread, and then it weaves its way all the way through the story, all the way to Revelation chapter 22. And we can see that thread, we find it when we see God sacrificing and killing animals to make a covering for Adam and Eve all the way at the very beginning. And we see it there on the Israelites last night in Egypt, their last night of bondage before God freed them. And we see it in the tabernacle. And we see it in the temple. We see it in what we just read here in Romans three twenty one through 26. It's beautifully displayed at the marriage feast that we read about in the book of Revelation. It can be found all through the Bible, this thread. And what makes it so wonderful is that this thread is tied to, or maybe wrapped repeatedly around, And then going out in all directions, it's wrapped and tied to the atoning work of what Jesus Christ did in his sacrificial death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. And we could give this thread that's going all through there, we could give it 
a name. I'll let you pick the color, but I want to give it the name. Uh, we could call it atonement. Or we could call it this big fancy word, propitiation. And you can see it almost everywhere you read in the Bible. The thread is critical to the gospel. It's the chief thread. If you were to, if you were to tease it out and you were to pull it out, everything else just unravels and falls apart. It's what holds all of it together. Yeah. And in the opening here in Romans, that we've seen Paul arguing that we've come from this broken world, we're in this broken world, we are sinners, there's this massive problem, and then we've now just read where we see the thread. There it is. We've got this terrible situation before us, but then there's Romans 3, 21 through 26, and there's that thread that we can sort of pick up and find our way back to the hope that is Jesus Christ. It's leading us to something wonderful. Here's what we see when we get a hold of that thread, when we follow it to the cross. We see that Jesus was punished, punished even unto death in our place, so that those who believe won't have to be. That's the blessed hope this thread leads us to over and over and over and over again. And it's right here in the text we just read. Now, usually I put the application of what we're doing at the end of the sermon or somewhere woven throughout the sermon, but I'm going to put it right here at the beginning so there's no surprises, no bait and switch. You know exactly what our goal is here, how we should apply this, what this text should lead us and drive us and direct us to. It's this. There is but one application, one thing we should do with this. This text forces us to ask the critical question, do I believe? And that's what I want to press upon us this morning. Do we believe, yes or no? And, and I appreciate all of you who are here, who are working this out, you're still not sure, and you are welcome to continue doing that, but know that this text says you can't stay in that exploratory, trying to figure it out place forever. At some point, you're going to have to come to grips with this. You're going to have to say yes or no. You cannot remain neutral. So here's what I want to do. I want to walk through each verse. There's, there's just a, five verses here. I want to walk through each one of them and make sure we understand with crystal clarity what Paul is saying in his argument and then see how it fits in the whole of the argument so that, that we can address the question that's been put before us. As we're moving through this, I want you to continue asking yourself, and certainly by the time we get to the end, and by the time you're heading out to lunch, by the time you're getting ready for tomorrow's barbecues and fun, and, and if you still haven't addressed it, by the time you're watching the fireworks go off, I want you to be asking this question, do I believe it? That's what we're going to do here. So let's just walk through this one verse at a time. If you are a note taker, this is probably your sermon. Uh, if you love study Bibles, you're probably going to think Brian sounds like a giant study Bible right now. But I think it'll be helpful. Let's just take it one verse at a time, starting in verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. You remember from last week, the law and the prophets is a way of saying all of the Old Testament. And it starts with, apart from the law. Okay, this does not mean that the gospel is unrelated to the Old Testament. 
that this is somehow something totally new, something we've never seen before. But what it does mean is that the purpose of the Old Testament is not the same purpose as what Paul is about to present. The purpose of the Old Testament was to show us our sin. Now, this has a new purpose, and that is indeed to show us how we are to be saved. That does not mean, though, that we can't see that purpose, the gospel in the Old Testament. It's attested to in the Law and the Prophets. It's just that the Law and the revelation of Jesus Christ have a slightly different purpose. Working in tandem together to bring us to salvation, one shows us our sin, one redeems us from our sin. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh and walked among us. That's what Paul wants to show us now, the solution. And he uses a word in here. We see it in this verse. We see it a whole bunch of times, five times in five verses. He uses the word righteous or righteousness. Righteous or righteousness. And in this verse, he says the righteousness of God. He's talking about, and it's just a way to remember, the rightness. It's a, it's a court term. It's a legal term in the court. A rightness, a, a, a sense of right, good standing justification. And in this verse and in the one that follows, so two times, he says the righteousness of God is a phrase. And in the most technical nerdy terms, it's got a genitive aspect in the Greek, which means they actually connect together as one single thing. It's not a description of a thing. It's the whole thing. It's the righteousness of God, one thing. And then in the remaining three times it shows up, The of God part is dropped, but he's referring to the same thing the whole time. The same thing, the rightness, the justification. It's what God has, and it's what God gives, and it's the focus of these five verses. You might have a little pericope heading. Mine says the righteousness of God through faith. This section is completely and entirely about the righteousness of God. And how we can obtain it. Or maybe how God grants it. Let's look at verse 22. Let's get into this. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe since there is no distinction. So now Paul is drilling down. First he's saying, hey, the righteousness of God is being revealed. And now he's saying, here's what the righteousness of God is about. How does it happen? How do we receive it? What's going on here? And he tells us, he gives us a, a, a little clue word. One receives the righteousness of God through faith. Don't miss that through. Through faith. That means that Jesus Christ is the means or the mechanism or the mechanics or the how to that we can be given this righteousness of God or that we can receive it. It is through, in, in its completeness, or because of, or by Jesus Christ. But also note that it's not for everyone universally. There are some who believe that he did this thing, and now it's universally everybody is saved, and it's fantastic. But no, it says it is for those who believe. So it is not automatic. It is not freely granted to everyone without them having to I mean, that you can't continue to reject God and by rejecting and pushing God away, somehow receive this gift, this righteousness. It is for those who believe. 
What we often don't do, though, is we don't ask the question, believe what? Because all of us believe in stuff. Some of us believe in things that aren't true. Some of us believe in crazy, but we all believe something. So it's not just that you believe in something. It's that you believe in something specific. What he's getting at here is that you believe in these verses, this gospel. What is being said here? You believe that you are a sinner, which Paul has been saying for three chapters. And that you believe that it is only through this means, this mechanism, which we will see is called grace, that you can receive the gift of God's righteousness. So it's not just believing whatever you desire. Do you believe this specific thing? And it's important. Paul gives us a slightly different perspective of this righteousness of God and what it is in the letter he wrote to the church of Philippi. It's in Philippians 3, 8 through 9. For the sake of time, I'm just going to read it rather than having you go there. It says, I consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. He's saying, that's the best. That's what we're shooting for. That's what we want. Everything else seems of no value. He says, because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through, there it is again, faith in Christ, the righteousness of God based on faith. You see that? Like there's, there's something powerful here that is for us and we must believe. And then he has this little line. He has this line that's not automatic, it's not for everybody. He says, since there is no distinction... Okay, there's no distinction. This is referring to the word all, all who believe. All means that it's open to anyone of all nations, all tribes, all people. It's not that all people will be saved, but that this is open to all people who believe. Now, let's look at Romans 3.23, some of you are going to be disappointed, but I'm not going to spend very much time here. Let's read it first. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is a critical verse. Most of you know, most of you have it memorized. It's a critical verse to the Romans Road approach to doing evangelism. But it may surprise you that it is a parenthetical statement in here. It is not the reason for this paragraph. The reason for the paragraph is to show us the righteousness of God. This is just an explanation. He kind of got a little bit on a rabbit trail, which Paul is really all about. He loves rabbit trails. He has a hard time keeping himself reined in. That's a summary statement of everything he just spent the first three chapters showing us. So I only want to just drive us into one thing here. I want you to notice that it says, All have sinned, past tense, but catch this. And all fall short of God's glory, present tense. You've sinned in the past, but you will always fall short of God's glory. You will always lack the the threshold of being in the right standing under your own power. Always. It's present tense and will continue that way. It's a statement of fact. We just don't measure up to God's standard as he's outlined in the law. And that's what those first three chapters are. So he's now given us a summary of that. And then he jumps back onto his point, 
So he went there because um, God has no distinction. So he gets off on a sidetrack, but now he's picking it back up again. Look at Romans 3.24. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. They is not referring to all who just fell short. Remember, that was a, a sidebar. That was a rabbit trail. If you were to read this and skip that verse, now it is inspired by God, but if you were to skip it, you'd clearly see that they is referring back to who? All who believe. Not all who fell short, but all who would believe. He's talking about all who believe are justified freely by his grace. What does that even mean? That's really what he's going to spend a great deal of time in for a number of, of chapters. But there's a word here that I want us to see, and I, I hope, if you write in your Bible, I would encourage, underline this, circle it, don't miss it. It's the word freely. Freely. Freely is added to emphasize the free aspect of grace. But it's not necessary, because grace by definition is free. So if we were to say grace is the free gift, he just said it's the free, free gift. It's free. I mean, like really free, no strings attached, free, freely. And, and the hard part about this is we miss that because we don't even fully understand grace most of the time. I don't think that just even in the church, of course the world out there doesn't get it, but even in the church we miss it. Okay, grace is getting what you do not deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. But you know how I know we don't understand this very well, even in my household, even in my own soul. How many of you, we'll just use this example, you've been frustrated with somebody, maybe a child, maybe a loved one, whatever. You're frustrated with somebody and you're talking with somebody else about that frustration and the other person says, hey, you should just show a little grace here. How many of you have ever, that's happened, or maybe you've said it, right? Hey, we just, I hope that they would show me some, I hope you'll show me some grace here. Hey, let's show that person some grace, okay? Well, that's not grace. That's mercy. That's giving them what they, they uh, that's not giving them what they do deserve. I'm frustrated with this person, I'm going to kill them, so by mercy, I'm not going to kill them, because they deserve to be killed. That's a, it's, that's the, that's the misunderstanding we have with grace. We need God's mercy just as much as we should cherish God's grace, but those two are not the same thing. And so I think often we think about mercy when we should be thinking about grace, but when we think about grace, then we see that freely aspect all the more. Now, I'm going to get technical in a couple of verses here. It's going to be nerdy. I'm hoping you'll follow along with me. If this isn't for you, just hang tight. There is some value in this. The Greek word here for that word freely is durian. Durian. It means being freely given or without contribution. Being freely given or without contribution. And we understand that pretty easily in the way it's used in 2 Thessalonians 3.8 when they said, we did not eat anyone's food free of charge. Durian, same word, free of charge. But here's the thing. 
words in English and in Greek and in any other language have a range of meaning. They mean a, a range. They don't mean all the things completely all the time, but there's a range of meaning. And sometimes there's a little bit of a nuance between those ranges that we have with our words. And there is a range here that has a nuance that we often miss in English with this word durion, with this free. To show you, I'm going to read a part of John 15, 25. Jesus says, They hated me for no reason. They hated me, Durian, for no reason. For no contribution of my own, they hated me. I didn't make a contribution, and yet they hated me. You see how that works? It's not just that it's, you don't have to pull your wallet out and pay for something. It's that there's no contribution for no reason. Durian freely means free, for no contribution, for no reason, nothing that you've contributed. This grace is nothing that you have given to it for no reason, for no contribution. But we miss this all the time. I was talking to a guy, I've had this conversation repeatedly in Utah. It's pretty common in Utah. I was talking to a guy who said, are we saved by grace? He said, yeah, we're saved by grace after all we can do. He said, we are saved by grace after all that we can do. And I said, that's weird. How is that, this freely, this durion grace with no contribution? He said, oh, I'll explain it to you. It goes like this. We're separated from God by a great chasm. That sounds like Isaiah, so I'm tracking with him. Okay, cool. We're on one side, God's on the other, and there's no way to get over there. And so we have to build a bridge. And so if we work really hard at building a bridge, and we do everything we can do, and we show God that we really want to get over there, so we build a bridge to the best of our ability, He's going to come and He's going to finish the bridge. Now, they will confess, we, we have no ability to make the entire bridge, but we have to show that we are serious by building the best part of the bridge we can. And then he said, grace is the part that God builds that we didn't build. So what happens if you don't work hard at building your part? Well, then you don't get it. Oh, so there's a contribution you have to make before you receive it. Well, then how is that grace? And if there's any confusion, how is that freely given free grace? There's no dury on there. There's I worked for it. That's not grace. If you've done anything to try to get that great, you can't do anything to get this free no contribution gift or you've made a contribution. And this says we are freely given the free non-contribution gift. That's grace. That's what God gives. Durion. It's free. That's what's being said here in Romans 3.24. Free. Let's go to 3.25. In light of this free gift. To explain this free gift, Paul says, God presented him, Jesus Christ, because he's just talking about Jesus. That's the subject. God presented Jesus Christ, him, as an atoning sacrifice, or your translation might say mercy seat, or it might say propitiation, if you have the ESV or some other translations, or it might say place of atonement. If you were to look in a number of translations, you will find different words. I'm going to go ahead and just use uh, mercy seat. I think that's what we have up here, right? 
God presented him as in a mercy seat in his blood, received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. Now, if you thought the last thing we did was technical and nerdy, it's about to, we're going to up it up a level. Okay, we're going to level this up just a tiny bit. But still, hang with me here. The payoff is going to be fantastic. I'm going to try to help make sense of this. Okay, it's another Greek word. It's halasterion. Halasterion is this very challenging word to translate. And it doesn't get any better when we read the, the definitions. I'm going to read. The definition are a means of expiation or a place of propitiation. You're like, what? That is a, what does any of that even mean? That did not help. Okay, that's because the English words are also complex. There's a very complex theological word here that actually, when we see it, is wonderful. So I'm going to give you the three definitions of these, these words that are being used, and then I'm going to see if I can paint a picture that will make it a little more clear. Expiation is the process, the process, the means, the, the mechanism by which sins are nullified or covered. Okay, so the the Passover and the Exodus, that's an expiation, a process. Jesus on the cross, an expiation. Propitiation, another big word, is the actual appeasement of an offended party, specifically God for his wrath or anger. So Jesus Christ is our propitiation. He's the, his atoning sacrifice is what appeased God's wrath. Okay, and the last one is atonement. Atonement is the reconciliation between the estranged parties, bringing them into an agreement. And in theological terms, atonement is something that requires the shedding of blood and the loss of life. Old Testament, New Testament. Okay, it's easier to see it with the actual illustrations the Bible has painted for us. So I'm going to try to go there instead. So if right now you're lost and you're like, this is way too much, that's okay. It's a lot, but let's go here. It'll be a little bit easier. Let's think about something you might be familiar with, something you've read in your Bible, the Day of Atonement. Who's familiar with the Day of Atonement? Yom Kippur, that one day a year. In Leviticus 16, when the high priest, the one appointed, goes through that thick veil into the Holy of Holies in the temple of the tabernacle, and there has been a blood sacrifice of a perfect unblemished bull, And the priest takes his finger and he takes the blood and with his finger he touches and rubs and sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. Okay, what's the mercy seat? Well, in Exodus 25, we learn that the mercy seat is the lid that goes on the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, the the law is in the Ark and then there's a lid put on it and it has the two... Uh, angels, the cherubim, and their wings. like It's just a, a spectacular lid. It's called the mercy seat. And in Exodus 25 and in Leviticus 16 and elsewhere in our Bible, we see that God's presence is specifically right there on the mercy seat. Inside the Holy of Holies, if you're wondering where God is when we're visualizing this, it's right there on the mercy seat. That's where he dwells. That is his presence inside. And that's where the blood is spread for that day of atonement sacrifice. Now, here's where it gets really fascinating. There is 
the very first translation of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, into the Koine Greek language. The New Testament's written in Greek, the Old Testament Hebrew. It's called the Septuagint, which means 70. Sometimes you'll see a note in your Bible and you'll see the Roman numeral 70LXX. It's making a reference to that translation. That translation happened 250 to 300 years before Jesus' earthly ministry. Okay, so we can see the Greek language and how the people in the Greek wanted to translate the Hebrew words. It's not perfect, but it's helpful. When they came to the Hebrew account in Exodus and Leviticus and onward of the mercy seat, they chose, which that word is, I'm not good with the Hebrew, but it's uh, kaporath. Kaporath was that word. They chose Hilasterian, mercy seat, Hilasterian, to translate that. Okay, so now we have this word, Hilasterian. But then we just read in Romans 3.25 the same word. Paul is now using that word and saying Jesus is presented as the Hilasterian, the mercy seat, where God's presence dwells, where the sacrifice for atonement is made. Jesus is the presence of God and the atoning sacrifice. Christ is the meeting place between God and man. In the Old Testament, when we had the temple and we didn't have this perfect sacrifice and the priest had to do this so that we could commune with God one day a year, it happened at the mercy seat. And Paul has just said, that's Jesus Christ. He is now the meeting place between God and man. He is now the holy of holies. And how fascinating is it that God said, I will write the law on their hearts. The law used to be contained on tablets in a box and the lid was the mercy seat. And now the law is written on our hearts and God dwells in us in Jesus Christ. The mercy seat. Paul is saying, Jesus is the mercy seat. Which then makes perfect sense why the temple was torn in. I mean, the, the veil in the temple was torn in too. It makes perfect sense why we don't need that temple, why we don't need that big veil separating us between man and God. Not because we need the veil to be ripped so we can go into where God dwells, but because God is not contained in there anymore because he's in us, in his mercy seat. Jesus Christ. The halosteria and the mercy seat presented to us, revealed to us, shown us. He's the atoning sacrifice. He's the propitiation. He's the place where we dwell. He's the place of atonement. He's the mercy seat. That's what Paul just said in this verse. That's why that word is so tricky and so hard to to get at. Even the CSB, when it was first translated, the one that, that I have, went with he's the atoning sacrifice. And when they came back to it, they went with what you saw on the screen. And so we're just going to make, we don't want to miss this. We don't want to miss this connection between the new and the old. He is the mercy seat. How cool is that? I find that to be pretty awesome. I find God to be pretty amazing in how that connects. It is pretty remarkable. Then there's just one more thing here. And I think people sometimes get this a little bit, get this a little bit uh, convoluted. It says, that God passed over the sins previously committed. One, it's a picture of the Passover, where the sacrificial lamb was slaughtered, and we go back 
to that picture of God liberating his people from bondage, that through all that he did, the Passover lamb passed over them and all who did not have the blood of the lamb on their doorposts and who didn't have that faith in God lost their firstborn and were killed. That's an illustration of a much bigger thing that is coming. God is not passing over the sin saying, I forgot them. He's saying, I'm, I'm going to come back to this one day. I'm not punishing today, but there will be a judgment. They're not forgotten. They have to be atoned for. There has to be a propitiation, a blood sacrifice. But he's not so quick to do that so that maybe that blood sacrifice can be done by Jesus Christ and not by you. Maybe it's Christ's life, not your life. He's passed over them for a time to say, let's see who's going to pay for this. But there will be a day when he will not pass over them anymore. There will be a day of reckoning when blood must be shed. Will it be Christ or will it be yours? What will that look like? So let's not get that confused and think that he's just forgotten sin altogether. He will judge. It must be paid for. Which brings us to verse 26. God presented him, Jesus, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. God presented him. God showed him. This is much like God presenting the law, God revealing the law. He's saying, look, just like we presented who I am and and what the truth is then, there's a presentation of that truth now in John One, we see that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and now there's a picture, even on the cross, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as to how one must be saved. God is continually revealing His truth and continually revealing salvation to us. He's showing us or making Christ known. And if you say why, there's always a good answer to the why when the verse has a so that. That's really saying this is why. So that, and we find that in this verse. Why would he do that? It says so that the one who has faith in Jesus is the one, uh, the one demonstrated, the one being shown, the one who has faith in Jesus would be saved or declared righteous, rightness, declared in good standing. And then that's the word he used. It says he declares righteousness or he declared him righteous. This declaration is a court term. Again, we have a court term here. It's like the verdict. It's the declaration of the judge. Here is the claim, the statement, the verdict. And the verdict is that the guilty one has been made right or in legal terms made whole. But it's not. It is not that the guilty one was declared innocent. When that happens in a court, it's as if we're saying there wasn't guilt. The claims were false. You're actually good. In this case, the guilty one is clearly declared guilty. Paul has spent three chapters saying all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. He's saying all are guilty. So how in the world is one being declared righteous? Unlike in our judicial system, God 
seems to have a, a more gracious heart in that he would punish the crime if someone else would pay for it. So this, this crime, this sin, this death penalty will be paid. But instead, he put it on his son. And he crushed his son so that we wouldn't have to face the punishment. The verdict has been paid. It's been paid. So now there's no more reason for punishment. So now the guilty can be declared righteous and made whole and made complete and receive this free gift and walk out of the courtroom free. How? How in the world? What is going on here? This is made crystal clear in 2 Corinthians 5.21. There's no doubt. That says, He, God, He made the one who did not know sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Justified. I've struggled with this a little bit. Up until, I think, this week, I would have said Jesus didn't deserve the punishment on the cross. Would you agree with that? Jesus didn't deserve that. I've said that a hundred times from this pulpit. He didn't deserve it. And then I realized he absolutely deserved it. He absolutely deserved the death and the punishment of the sin on the cross. You know why? Because he had your sin on him. Sin has to be punished. What he didn't deserve is our sin being placed on him. But as soon as our sin was placed on him, there was no other possible result than he would be killed and crushed under the weight of God's wrath. He certainly didn't deserve that our sin would go on him, but he took it anyway. So what you see on the cross in Jesus Christ, you need to see yourself there because that's where you would have been. That's what you would have endured. Not just the physical beatings, having your beard torn out if you have one, being ashamed and naked and spit on and mocked. That's all just the earthly stuff. Don't miss the overwhelming, crushing power of God. The full, unleashed power against sin. Pummeled into the soul of the one on the cross. That should have been you and that should have been me. And that's what Christ did so that we can walk out of the throne room of God free with him. And Jesus defeated that in his resurrection, which is why we should be so excited every day and worship our guts out when we see that he overcame what we could definitely not overcome. He was made sin so that we could be free. Here's the point of this whole section. Our sin was put on Jesus, and then Jesus was punished for sin. He took the punishment that we deserved so we could be declared the righteousness of God or justified before God. It should have been on us on the cross. It should have been on us crushed, but it was Jesus. He took it for us. Now, at this point, I think... We could keep going through this. We could dig deeper and deeper and deeper, but I think we have a pretty clear understanding of the point Paul's trying to make, right? He's turning the corner. We were sinners, but now there's something so amazing. I think with this understanding, we can now see it in the whole of the argument that Paul has made so far. He has been thundering away with the problem. He's been clearly articulating there is a problem. I don't think there's any doubt there's a problem in the world. There's sin in the world. The world is crazy. 
and we were a part of it. I don't think we missed that. I don't think I don't think we need to keep digging through that. And so I think Paul has now made this change so that he can now say, this is what all of this book is about. This is where we're going in Romans. This was the chief reason for writing this. He summarized this in his letter to the Ephesians. So I think just to get the whole argument in sort of Paul's summary, if you would turn to Ephesians chapter 1. I want to close with this summary you go to Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 7 through 10. It's on page 1036 if you're using that pew Bible. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. And it's so strange when we read some of this. Paul opens with the gospel in almost all of his letters. In fact, I think every letter he has some aspect of the gospel. Um, And a lot of times we go, yeah, yeah, I know that. But listen to the summary again. Ephesians 1 verse 7. In Him, Jesus Christ... In Him we have redemption. Through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace that He freely poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure that He purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ. There's that thread discussion again. Both things in heaven and things on earth in Him. Remember how this started? If you go back to Romans. Remember where we started with this argument? Romans 1.17 The righteous will live by faith. That's how he started. That's what he's been arguing the entire time. And we see it again in Romans 3.22. It says the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. He's going to spend the next many chapters showing us what it looks like to live in this righteousness. He's going to show us what it looks like to live in this faith. But first, we have to come to grips with this claim. We have to come to grips with it. Is Paul right? Is he right? Here's the claim. Jesus was our propitiation or atoning sacrifice or he was our place of atonement or he is our mercy seat in the place of sinners so that those who believe will be justified before God. Is he right? If you haven't come to grips with this, my challenge to you is you need to. Yes or no? There's no middle ground. Do you believe it or not? Let's pray. God, I, I, I thank you that you're the place of atonement. I thank you that you're the sacrificial lamb. I thank you that you would do this thing for us that we do not in any way deserve. To show your glory. To show who you are. Help us, Lord, in our unbelief to see. Help us live by faith. God, as we worship you, help us to truly see why it is we do so to say thank you, to praise you, that you would get the glory for this. And God, now that we've rounded this bend and we're seeing the gospel in your word, 
And we'll see it as we continue through Romans, as we see the thread all through the Bible. Lord, let us never miss it. Let us just see it so clearly over and over and over and over again. For anyone in here, Lord, or anyone watching online or or who might come in contact with this, struggling to believe this truly, I just ask you to open their eyes so they can't not believe it. Make it clear as can be. Continually remind us, Lord, that we don't need to build a bridge across the chasm. That's nonsense. It's not free. The works doesn't do it. The Jesus Christ has already done it. The bridge is built. The bridge was built before we could do a single work. Before we could lay a single piece, the bridge was there. All we have to do is believe it and walk across it. For those who continue to reject Jesus for the sake of themselves, Lord, just keep showing them the bridge. Show them Jesus. Show them the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation, that we would see the mercy seat. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.